This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. This is the podcast making public transit taking, kiss, stealing, wheeling, dealing, son of a gun, Tim the Nerd, welcoming you to a very special episode of Friends Talking Nerdy, part of the Deluxe Edition Network. Head to deluxeeditionnetwork.com to find out more information about all the lovely shows on the den. And joining me, as always, we have the greatest legal mind of the Pacific Northwest, Professor Aubrey. Hi there, Tim. How's it going? It is going good because we have a very special guest on the show this week. We don't have too many, but when we do, we make sure it is very special. And this week, we are going to be talking with Dr. Karen Stalls now, um, who was born in Sydney, Australia, holds a PhD in linguistics from the University of New England. She used to live in the Bay Area. I used to live in Sacramento, so not far from that myself, and currently lives in Denver, Colorado. So, Dr. Karen, thank you for being on Friends Talking Nerdy. Oh, thank you for inviting me on the show. Yes, yeah, we're definitely, definitely excited. You um, are the first person that has ever written for Psychology Today that has been on our show. Um, The the co-creator of our show, the Reverend uh, Tracy, was the one who uh, introduced uh, using Psychology Today articles for us. And um, we just wanted to uh, thank you for taking time out of your day on a blustery winter day to join us. (laughs) And my apologies, I'm not actually a psychologist. Oh, <laughs> linguistics. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I, I work for, I, I write for psychology today, but uh, they, they have a, a large pool of authors from all kinds of genres. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not a psychologist, but a, a linguist. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and speaking of that, why don't we dive into our first question here? What interest, yeah. what interested you in linguistics? Well, uh, I think that uh, I started studying law actually many years ago now that was my initial interest and uh, I was doing a Bachelor of Arts as well and I was interested in uh, English literature and Mm. the more I studied that the more I found out I was more interested in the scientific study of language rather than studying literature so uh, I took a course in linguistics and I was really fascinated by all the myths and misconceptions that are out there about language and linguistics, all the kind of folkloric beliefs that people have about linguistics. And uh, it just really blew my mind. It busted so many myths uh, about, uh, for example, being reading and uh, that language or certain non-standard accents or dialects are not corrupt. It's not bad English or anything like that. It's just a different way of speaking, which reveals where you're from and uh, your background, your education, other facets of uh, and characteristics about you. But uh, you can't really judge languages in that way. And, you know, I'd kind of grown up with people saying, oh, don't 
end a sentence with a preposition and speak this way and uh, all of the kind of uh, prescriptive rules of grammar and just to find out that that's not what linguists believe. They don't tell people how to speak. They describe how people speak. So I was really attracted to that. I thought it was really open-minded. And uh, so it was really something I didn't seek out initially but fell into and developed a, a love of and to, to this day. That's wonderful. It's interesting that you came to your interest in linguistics from an interest in English literature and law, which are both things that I have studied. And There you go. Yeah. And I have often thought about linguistics or become becoming a ling- linguistic linguist, <laughs> sorry, um, <laughs> because it is so fascinating, as you say, the different types of language and how it reflects culture and Sorry to interrupt, but no, uh, the, I've worked with people from a variety of backgrounds, mathematicians who came to linguistics and uh, a lawyer I've worked with who came to linguistics. So I think you've kind of got that thing where a lot of actors are frustrated musicians and vice versa. I think we, we all have our careers and our interests, but we have that different persona inside of us and that kind of wanderlust for another area. So hopefully you can pursue that someday because it, it's really interesting. And uh, I, I there is a branch of linguistics which focuses on law as well. I've got a friend who teaches at a university in Australia and um, uh, there's the intersection of linguistics and law when you talk about maybe Indigenous people coming into the, the courtroom and their different ways of interacting with the court. Uh, mm. For example, Aboriginal people might not make eye contact and that's not because they're guilty. That just means they're being deferential, they're being respectful, and that's how they behave in, in their culture. So, yeah, there's a huge intersection between linguistics and law. Yeah, it sounds like it. But now you have a PhD in lexical semantics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could you share with us what what exactly that is? Uh, it means that I go for long periods of time without a job. <laughs> and have to do other things. But uh, so lexical semantics, so le- the lexicon is vocabulary, words, uh, and there are lots of different types of semantics. But the one I work with, lexical semantics, is about meaning of words. You've got grammatical semantics as well, which is about uh, meaning of grammar. But uh, my area is looking at the, the meaning and usage of words. And so I have had an interest in a lot of different areas over the years, discrimination and prejudice, but I began with swear words and offensive words. And so that was really fun to to look at rude words in Australian English and insults and to try to define them using a particular methodology. There aren't many people who do what I do, maybe a, a hundred or more. And uh, so it's a, a very small group of people. But it's uh, it, it's an interesting area. I know people that have just researched maybe one word for their doctorate, for their dissertation, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's very nerdy. It fits in with this show. <laughs> it sounds amazing because it sounds like you could all get together at one conference and you could all talk about your work together and and that and you know, disagree. Oh, really? <laughs> there are all so many different schools of thought when it comes to semantics, uh, lots of different ways to to do the same thing. And uh, so lots of uh, respect, I think, for other people who have different approaches and methodologies, but a lot of competition too. 
I see. I see. Yeah, I guess a um, very small pond, but a very small, yeah. a very specific area of interest. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, in uh, the research we did uh, for for this, I saw that you worked with an organization called Australian Skeptics, and I was wondering, um, from the stories that uh, you've written uh, with them, um, are there what ones are you exceptionally proud of? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, that seems, feels like a lifetime ago now, but I did work with them. I used to do investigations. I started when I was uh, in high school and wanting to do work experience. And I reached out to them because I thought they sounded interesting. I was really interested in the paranormal and supernatural, but I didn't really know if I believed in ghosts and psychics and those kinds of things or not. I wanted to be open-minded about it, but I, I got in contact with this group and I said, can I do work experience? And they said, oh, look, we don't take students in. There's nothing we can have you do. Sorry, hung up on me. And then I got a phone call maybe about half an hour later and it was their chief investigator, a guy by the name of Harry Edwards. And he said, well, actually, I wouldn't mind your help with something. I'm doing an investigation into alternative medicine alternative therapies. And I wanted someone who's open-minded and uh, I guess no one would suspect them of, of going undercover to go undercover and see a number of different therapists. Uh, so that included a, a homeopathist, an iridologist, a, a medium, various other people working in that industry. And so what they wanted me to do is to, to visit them and to have a consultation, have a diagnosis to see what they said about me and then for me to go and see a medical doctor and to see if they were accurate or not. So I thought that sounded really interesting. It sounded like a kind of Matahari situation uh, to you know, intrepid investigator. So I did that and had a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know what your stance is on alternative therapies, but uh, they were all incorrect with what they said about me. They uh, some of them diagnosed that I had this particular problem or a psychiatric condition, various other things going on. And so then I saw this medical doctor and he ran a, a battery of tests and said, no, you're young and healthy. I was maybe about 20 at the time. And so it, it was interesting. And I wrote up a section for this investigation based on what I did. And I was really hooked. Uh, and I said, can I get involved more? Is there anything else I can do? Oh, no, there's really nothing for you to do. And they hung up on me again and then called me back half an hour later and said, we'd like you to join our committee. We don't have any other women on the committee. Oh, my And goodness. so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the late 90s. So uh, yeah, they, they didn't really have many women involved. It was kind of older curmudgeons that were uh, contributing and so I got involved with them for a number of years. I ended up becoming their executive officer and editor for a short period of time, uh, but was kind of moving back and forth between Australia and America, uh, doing a PhD, and uh, ended up moving back to the States and meeting my husband uh, and getting involved with the organizations here, the skeptical organizations here. But I've written about lots of different things over the years. I think my main interest is ghosts uh, and writing about claims of hauntings. And uh, so I am a host, co-host of the podcast Monster Talk. So we talk a lot about cryptozoology and cryptids and legendary creatures. So it's just a, an interest I've had since I was very young. And it's fun to be able to maintain this as a hobby 
in various ways. Yeah, um, it's very interesting. And, and this might seem like a simple question, but why is it that is it, it's important for us to test claims like that, to be skeptical about claims? Well, I think that's a really good question. And especially when it comes to something like alternative medicine. My uncle died of thyroid cancer a couple of decades ago. And when he received his diagnosis, he explored alternative therapies instead of immediately going and having his thyroid taken out and having chemotherapy. And uh, unfortunately, because of that, uh, it, it really shortened his life. And by the time he got around to having the uh, orthodox medicine, it was too late for him. And we've seen that with other people too, uh, like uh, Steve Jobs. It's happened a lot with mm. celebrities and uh, these stories come up in the news where people delay orthodox medicine and might go to another country to have psychic surgery or to, to try other things that are they see as being uh, more natural. But I think it is really important to test these kinds of claims or to, to really seek the evidence. And uh, if someone makes a claim about something, whether it's alternative medicine or it's about psychic abilities, you can really get into a lot of trouble with dealing with these kinds of people if you're not skeptical. Skepticism sometimes has a bad name. It uh, has negative connotations. So it, we might want to talk about this in terms of critical thinking or uh, lots of different ways to describe it. Um, but people often see skeptics as cynics, but that's not what I go into into any investigation uh, with that with that stance. I want to be open-minded and to find out if there is anything to these claims. But yes, yeah, certainly we don't want to just accept something at face value. We want to look into it and do our own research. Yeah. And I know one person that I've been aware of that uh, kind of led the charge in America uh, in, in terms of putting his money and, and his work behind, you know, be supporting skeptical organizations is someone who wrote a forward to one of your books, James Randi, The Amazing Randi. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he passed a couple of years ago, but yeah, he was, uh, I think, a Harry Houdini of his time testing claims. And uh, I think he may not have always had the, the best attitude when it came to this. And I think he bristled with a lot of people because of his personality, but I think he really meant well and he really wanted to help people uh, and didn't want people to have the wool pulled over their eyes and for them to be fleeced of their money or worse, what happened to my uncle to, uh, to lose your life to, to these kinds of promises. Indeed. Yeah. Um, speaking of the amazing Randy again, um, I was wondering if you have a story you could share if, uh, if you do about interacting with her. Well, I worked for the James Randy Educational Foundation for a number of years. I was doing investigations for them. So I did meet him a number of times and he was up in years. So let's just say that pretty much every time I met him, it was like I was meeting him for the first time. <laughs> he didn't always remember me, but uh, I really did enjoy spending time with him uh, at conferences or, or wherever I would catch up with him because he'd always perform magic tricks. So you'd be sitting there having a coffee over breakfast and he'd just perform a trick for you. And uh, I mean, he was, he just had so many stories to tell uh, of things that had happened to him, uh, just interesting stories and a lot of things like coincidences too. So it was interesting to have a more kind of skeptical look at something that someone else might call synchronicity 
he he just lived a very full life and uh, had many anecdotes and stories to tell and lots of tricks to play on people. I mean, yeah, for somebody that, you know, is, you know, helped spearhead uh, his organization as well as touring with Alice Cooper in the 70s, he led the interesting life. He really did. Yeah, that was a very remarkable portion of his life and I think gave him a new audience. He was up there, what, beheading Alice on stage, I think was one of the tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely taught him how to do that. Well, Yeah, so it was uh, it was a great period of my life. It sounds really fun. Another, So I wanted to sort of change gears and ask you about writing. As writers ourselves, sure. we love to ask people about their writing process and sort of what, you know, what do you do to keep yourself writing, to keep yourself motivated? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, and I probably need some help with that myself at times. Mm. <laughs> I think it's difficult to stay motivated. I think uh, I've got a, a bucket list of topics that I want to write about and I'm steadily going through that list. And it's difficult because I think post-COVID, well, to some extent, we're, we're still going through the pandemic, but uh, it's really starting to change the publishing industry and it's getting harder to get book contracts. Um, so I just at any given time have a bunch of proposals and farm them out to agents and farm them out to publishers and just hope that something's going to hit the wall and, and stick. But I think that I really do enjoy research. So once I start working on a book and I start exploring that topic, I like doing deep dives into topics. We do that a lot on Monster Talk as well, to go into something uh, in a lot of depth. And once I'm, I'm researching that topic, you find so many things to talk about, so many angles and perspectives, and it gets you excited. And I think talking about the topic with your friends and family too, and getting their ideas and suggestions maybe from related pop culture, I think you just have to thrust yourself into the topic and really absorb as much as you can. And that just brings with it uh, an inherent excitement and hopefully it's something that you can maintain. I mean, it really is difficult. If you go and do a PhD or you do a, uh, a dissertation for honours level or master's level, to maintain that interest for a long period of time is difficult. So you, you do really need to choose something that you are uh, fascinated with to do it for love and for not for money and just do your best to stick with it. And if you have to take a break and maybe shelve it for a while, um, I've had people say that to me in the past, even if you just put it on the shelf for a year or, or longer and then come back to it later on, sometimes you, maybe you need more life experience or just to, to really think about something, leave it on the back burner of your mind and to come back to it later on. But it, it's it is difficult. Interesting. So I, you know, the proposal process. Um, it sounds like that's something you have to produce ahead of writing whatever you're proposing to write. Mm-hmm. Are those proposals yeah. pretty significant on their own? Do you have to do a lot of research um, well, and writing? The, before- it really depends. Yes, yes. And it depends on the kind of publisher you're going with. If you're going with a, I've been publishing a lot with academic trade, which is this uncomfortable marriage of scholarly, academic, and 
trade a popular audience. And so I think a lot of publishers don't really know how to straddle that line, how to do both academic and trade at the same time. Mm. Uh, But I've sometimes had to rewrite proposals. It's like, I guess, applying for a job in a sense, applying for a position of being the author of a book that you are the the artist for uh, or of. And uh, so depending on the job, you might tweak your resume, you might tweak your cover letter. So it's it's rather like that. And it, it can be a real drag to write these things because maybe the book will never even happen. But when you work on a proposal, you'll need to have a uh, maybe an abstract if it's more academic and to have a synopsis and uh, an overview and then chapter outlines. So you, in some ways, having to write the book before you've written it. And at the same time, it really does help you to prepare yourself for the book because you are having to do research. You are having to create a bibliography and to refer to previous people who have written about this topic. So it's a hell of a lot of work, but mm-hmm. I think it does really set you up for when you sit down to that blank page and you begin, what do I do? Where do I go from here? It can be very daunting. But if you have that proposal in hand, you've got some direction of where you're going. And often things will change too. You might may start with a particular idea, a particular hypothesis or premise, and then find out that's wrong. Uh, then things that you have uh, investigated and researched along the way, you might come to a completely different conclusion by the end of the book. And that's why if you go through an academic publisher, you'll go through the peer review process. And that can be a drag too because uh, sometimes academics aren't terribly polite or friendly and can be rather critical. So that can be difficult. That's very difficult to swallow criticism when it can be handed to you in a, an insulting and abusive way. Mm. Uh, I, I do my best in those kinds of situations to to really glean from it, take from it what is positive and, and what will be helpful and to try and you know, keep a smile on my face about it. But uh, it can be demoralizing at times. But I think it usually does result in a better book when you get that feedback. But it the whole process can take months to even years to come up with the proposal, to to get contacts and network and to feel the proposal out, then to go through the peer review process and to get feedback. They might want you to even write a chapter or to complete the entire manuscript before they say yay or nay. So it can, uh, can really be difficult and it depends on the publisher and the people you're dealing with. Yeah, really different every time, I would say. There's no one way that it happens. All right. So before we go to our next question, what we are going to do here is take a moment to hear from one of our friends at the Deluxe Edition Network. Hang tight. I'm Chris. And I'm Mel. And together we host the podcast Spoil Spoil My My Movie. Movie. We were watching movies anyway. And we were having in-depth conversations about those movies too. So, we decided to share our thoughts with the world. You can expect me to gripe about inaccurate details like supposedly cold weather, but you can't see anyone's breath. And you can expect me to be totally but also psychologically deep. And by the end of each episode, we'll provide our respective ratings. Using a rating scale custom tailored to the movie in question. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. We're everywhere. We're actually behind you. 
right now. So how long have you been writing for Psychology Today? 10 years. <laughs> that is a long time. Yeah, I won't say it's been consistent, but uh, over the past maybe three or four years, I've been writing more frequently. And I think at first, because I'm not a psychologist, I was a little, mm, I don't know if I should be writing for this crowd. Uh, but there, to use the term again, there's a lot of intersection between psychology and linguistics, communication. And uh, I mean, it's all about how you communicate with other people. And um, certainly a lot of mental illness can you have to, for example, if you're talking about something like borderline personality disorder, um, DBT, there are a lot of skills which are linguistic in origin. So there's a lot of crossover. So I've tried to be more brave and to write for them more often. Well, we're very glad that you did because we um, have enjoyed certainly the article. Um, Thank you. And you were talking about peer review on an academic level. And one of the things about psychology today that we have really been impressed with is their peer review process. So mm -hmm. as we understand that the articles are submitted and then they're reviewed by other people who also write for psychology today, um, just wondered if that is, is right and if you could talk about that process. Uh, well, my experience has been that I write an article and then submit it it's changed a little bit over time. They used to have a much faster process where you would submit it. And if you submitted it before, I think, 6 p.m. ET, they would try to push that through that day and have it edited. So now they seem to take longer. It seems to be about a week's turnaround maybe. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure if it is peer-reviewed, if they have psychologists or, or fellow colleagues uh, reading these and ascertaining whether they're correct or not. Uh, psychology is another area like linguistics where you have lots of schools of thought, lots of different uh, ways of looking at the same things and, and but different theories. Uh, so I've only really dealt with editors that, that I'm familiar with, but they probably have degrees in psychology, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason uh, we brought up that question on the articles that uh, the, uh, all the articles that we've used on the show, including yours, which is on episode three thirty three in our archives, um, it does say near the top by your byline that um, th that the article was reviewed by somebody else as well. What that, which is why we asked yes. that question. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. My next question then is: Have you submitted an article to Psychology Today that they rejected, and if so, <laughs> why? Then that's a good question. And yes, I have had had articles rejected, but then at a later point, they have been accepted. So what's happened in my case has been that uh, sometimes I've submitted, I think it's because of my background as a lexical semanticist. Sometimes I just like to write about a particular condition or disorder. I just get fascinated with it. And then I write this big piece and I think, oh, this is, this is great. I love this. And then they'll say, oh, no, we're going to knock it back because it is just a definitional piece. And we already have a whole section of our website that's devoted to uh, a kind of glossary or defining conditions. I, there was one piece that I wrote on hoarding because I had a um, member of my family who had been a terrible hoarder and his house was just full of things, everything he'd ever bought or collected. And I thought, yeah. I think in some ways I write about topics that are related to 
uh, things that are going on in my life or people who are around me, it's helpful for me to understand more about various conditions uh, that are affecting me or affecting family members or friends. So I, I like, again, to do a deep dive into these topics. So I tend to like doing that kind of basic research and looking at definitions. But no, they want an angle. They want you to write uh, about something from a, a new perspective because they do have a lot of contributors. And you know they're going to want you to write about something specific, something topical, perhaps to reveal new research or new facts or findings that are out there. So yeah, I have had, I think, two, two or three articles where they didn't reject them out of hand, but said, you need to uh, to do this. And they will offer some feedback and suggestions on, on what you can do as well. So kind of the, you know, it sounds like all of that, the proposal process and then submission process to different um, journals is is quite a process. And so we would love for you also to talk about your podcast because it's maybe a little bit different from that in terms of what you can talk about and, and um, express. So would you mind telling our audience about your podcast, which is happens to be uh, rebroadcast on WPRR in Tim's hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan. There you go. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we we do get played at a, a number of radio stations, one in uh, Los Angeles as well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really great. We've been doing the show since 2009. Uh, so my, my co-host, the producer of the show, Blake Smith, uh, he is just a fantastic person to work with. He is just so smart. I uh, should have him on the show sometime. He's a lot of fun to talk to. He's just a really knowledgeable guy, just knows so much about so many areas. And uh, we met at DragonCon back in 2008 and got talking about some topics that we were interested in and uh, we just thought it was really cool that here I am coming from Australia and he's uh, born and bred in uh, Georgia, uh, rural Georgia, and yet we, we had so many similar interests and we started talking about a number of cases that uh, we were familiar with, which are kind of classic stories but they're pretty rare. Not many people at that point anyway were talking about them. And uh, we, we were just fascinated that we both knew about these uh, these cases. So we kept in contact and he uh, he came up with the idea. So Monster Talk is his baby. And we when we first started the show, we had a lot of people say, oh, how many episodes can you uh, talk about Bigfoot on before everyone's going to get bored? But uh, it is, it's an endless topic. There's just an endless number of uh, monsters and cryptids. Our definition of monster is very broad too. So nowadays uh, we will talk about people who are monstrous people. So whether it's Rasputin or Hitler, we've uh, talked about a, a lot of people who could be classified as monsters too. And it's it's just a lot of fun. We've been doing this for over a decade and uh, well over a decade now, but we just haven't run out of topics. And we, to this day, get messages from listeners all around the world suggesting topics. And, uh, you know, we really kept very busy with uh, with this show. And it's, uh, it's just, just a lot of fun. It really does take you back to your childhood and the kind of delicious fear of monsters or 
the idea of the monster in the closet or under the bed. Uh, and it's it's really great to be able to look at these monsters and use it as a springboard to talk about science as well. Mm. Yeah, now I'm sure this is something every podcaster, and I've been asked this before myself, but in regards to Monster Talk, what would you say are some of your favorite episodes that in your head you just go back to thinking this is the absolute best thing I've done podcasting-wise? Well, I don't know if in, it would be in terms of the best thing I've done podcasting wise, but in terms of just topics that have stuck with me since childhood and have really piqued my curiosity and my excitement, uh, there are a number of shows that I immediately think of. And one of them is one that we did quite recently, maybe about a year ago, and it was a story that Telly Savalas from the TV show Kojak, the lollipop sucking detective, he had told this on a show called The Explained, uh, and it was an Australian show. So it was kind of like In Search Of, like one of those shows or Unsolved Mysteries, but it was this weird little Australian show back in the 80s. And uh, he'd appeared on there and had told this urban legend, but it was an urban legend with a twist. So you, I'm sure you're familiar with the vanishing hitchhiker legend where someone's on a lonely road and they pick up a hitchhiker and have a strange conversation. And then at some point, perhaps when they drive past a cemetery, the hitchhiker disappears. So that's a real urban legend. But this Telly Savalas' story had a twist in that he was the one who was picked up by a ghost. And so I urge listeners to this show to go and either listen to our episode or check out the story on YouTube. But he tells it he was a very interesting personality and uh, had a real way with talking to people. And uh, when he told this story, I was just so intrigued and really freaked out. It was really creepy. And uh, so we, we covered that. And I was very curious to find out that even though he told that story a lot over the course of his life, that story elements had changed over time and no one had really done any digging into the story either. And uh, so I was able to do some research and to find out some interesting information about the story and um, what might really have happened. So that was just, I, I think, uh, from an egotistical perspective anyway, it was something I'd wanted to do for a long time for myself. And we had a lot of good feedback about that show. But uh, the other shows that I've enjoyed, there's a, a weird story from the Isle of Man dating back to the 1930s about a talking mongoose named Jeff. And I've always loved that tale and being a linguist as well, just the element of a, a monster or a creature that could talk was fascinating to me. Uh, so uh, again, to talk of bucket lists, I have a, a long list of topics that I want to treat over time. And it's often just a matter of finding someone who's an expert, someone who's written a book uh, or someone who's done the research already. Often Blake and I will do our own research and just pick a topic that's near and dear to our hearts and to, to do the work ourselves. But sometimes if you can find an expert out there already, someone who's done the work, it's great to bring them on and to get that access to expertise. Well, you know, just thinking about all the different things that you write about and have written about and been involved with is such a such a broad range of things because your your books and the one that we have focused on 
over the last couple of weeks has been on the offensive. And wow, what a really fascinating book. We have been really enjoying it. And just wondering, so from all of the things that you had done before, like what was the impetus for you to write a book about offensive language? And it, it sounded like maybe earlier you were talking about Aboriginal people in Australia and might be some cultural things mm-hmm. involved. Um, it certainly is bringing up a lot of that for me. So just right. what compelled you to, to write this particular book? Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, when I started linguistics, I was doing definitions of rude words and insults, and it kind of went from there. So for my PhD, I focused on the processes of discrimination and prejudice. So looking at dehumanization, you know, how do people dehumanize people with language and uh, looking at just all the, the different ways that we discriminate people and uh, insulting them, offending them. And so it was all kind of clinical, wouldn't make for a great book itself, really, the, the PhD work. But uh, it really did instill in me an interest in uh, offensive language. And th- there's just been so much discussion of this in recent years and uh, with a lot of political things that have happened. And uh, so it's something that stayed with me for for some time. And just going back a couple of years ago, I was talking with a publisher about various ideas that I had. And I said one of them is a, would be a kind of popular reinterpretation of my PhD. So not the dry academic stuff that I had in the uh, dissertation, but to look at that from a, a modern perspective uh, and look at the language that people use to offend or what is offensive. That's the question that I really asked. And that was the original name of the book was why is that offensive? And there's a a similar book out there, why is that racist? And I thought this is such a great question. And I wanted to use that title because I feel like I do address that question to talk about a particular insult and then explain the baggage that that word has and what it means and why people might find it offensive. Uh, But they didn't want to use that term because they thought, well, if you had more of a psychology kind of perspective on that, that would be okay. But because this is primarily linguistic, let's go with something else. So uh, we we went with the pun on the offensive. But I I did want to stick with why is that offensive because I think that's the core question of the book. Uh, And again, being linguistic in nature, it's not about telling people how to speak. It's about giving people the knowledge of this language, why it's offensive. Uh, I grew up with a a father who liked to swear a lot and uh, use abusive language. And at the same time, I think he had a kind of naivety to a lot of insults that he used to use. And he'd say, well, uh, you know, why is that offensive? Why uh, would someone see that in a negative way? This is just an abbreviation or or something like that. And, um, you know, for example, uh, you might want a content note here, but for um, uh, going back decades ago, an insult for Aboriginal people was ABO. And, but if you go further back in time, it was just an abbreviation. So you might use that um, just to, as a way of referring to Aboriginal people in a familiar way uh, or in a friendly way. But over the decades, because of the way that Indigenous people have been treated in Australia, that developed negative connotations and became offensive. 
So, but my father would say, well, look, in my day, this wasn't offensive. We just used this word in this way. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of different perspectives on insulting and offensive language. And again, there's just so much discourse out there about this at the moment. Uh, and a lot of people, people weighing in with their perspectives and opinions. And uh, I just thought, hey, this is a good use of the, the PhD <laughs> to go and write about this. And, uh, you know, these this kind of thing is changing all the time. There are words that I've written about that might become, might ameliorate in future and become more innocuous. Uh, this this is something that's constantly changing and it is really hard to keep your finger on the pulse of what's offensive, but we can try at least. Now, when I was uh, reading your book, uh, the first chapter brought back a vivid memory to me of walking home on election night in America here in 2008. I had the radio, I, I had the radio playing my headphones in and I was listening to NPR and uh, they had a woman on the street uh, that was interviewed and she opened up with the words that started off chapter one of your book. I'm not a racist, but, and it, yeah, it got me thinking, uh, and you did a really good job in doing this, but it got me thinking, what focus did you keep in mind while writing the book that tried to keep the reader from becoming defensive and actually open their hearts to what you were saying? Hmm, I don't know if I achieved that. <laughs> and it really depends on the, the person reading the book too. I think that uh, the average person who has purchased the book or who was interested in this is more tends to be more liberal in mindset or someone who's maybe on the fence and and is truly seeking information and wants to to understand uh why is this language offensive what can i do about it to, to be informed but i think you know i did write the book with family members in mind who are more conservative and uh less open-minded and use this kind of language and don't particularly care about uh, how it's received or, or possibly even hope that it is received in an offensive way. But I, I think I just tried to be as, I, I guess, as level-headed as possible and to not really come down on people for using this language, but to just say, hey, this is the history behind this word. This is what it has meant. This is what it means now. This is what it could mean in future. Uh, when you use this, it says a lot about attitudes and beliefs and behaviours. Um, so think about your language. Words matter. That was really the message that I wanted to get across, not so much, hey, don't use this language. Um, I didn't dare to, to think that uh, racism would just suddenly disappear. With the, the publication of my book, I'm realistic and know that uh, people do speak this way and people have blind spots too. Uh, I think even someone who's well-meaning may see a certain group of people in a certain way. Uh, there are lots of final frontiers when it comes to these kinds of things, offensive language and taboos. And, uh, you know, I think we, we have our own areas of interest and concern for me as a woman, sexism. Um, but then for other people, they might not understand why something's not important if it doesn't affect them or affect loved ones. Uh, it can be really difficult to see outside of your own worldview and your own experiences. So when people are offended by language and want to express that to the people using language that's offensive, do you think they're, in your experience and also in your research for the book, whether there's a way to talk to people about 
words that people hear a little bit before they react in a negative way when you when you mm-hmm. try to tell them that you're offended by something i i think that uh that's so important but just really so difficult and something that has to be taken on a case by case basis because uh, a lot of people just are not going to be receptive to this kind of thing they're not going to try to to meet you at that that level and to uh, have a proper open honest conversation about language i think that if you're dealing with family members and you otherwise do get along with them i think you can sit them down and say look i i love you and uh, i want you to understand how i feel about this particular topic uh, and just have an open conversation uh, to maybe try to uh, come across some articles that perhaps support your arguments as well so it's not just something coming from you that could seem like it's motivated but to say look this is here's some information about um, why this is offensive and um, the background connected to this word or or this language Uh, so I think you just really need to maintain an open honest conversation about this kind of thing but uh, certainly there'll be some people who will just say you're too sensitive you need to toughen up Uh, you know I've had that said to me uh, as an immigrant from various members of my husband's family who were born here in uh, in Colorado, they would make disparaging comments and I'd say, look, my background as an immigrant, certainly I'm a lot more privileged than other immigrants. I speak the language and I'm um, white, so I have all of this this privilege, but I've still suffered some difficulties as an immigrant and a lot of... Um, preconceived ideas that people have and prejudice as well about immigrants, no matter where you're from or what you look like. And uh, that was really met with, oh, you're just too sensitive. And um, I I think they couldn't understand people from rural Colorado, they've never traveled outside of the country or even their own state. And it was difficult for them to understand my experiences and my background and and how things uh, can be difficult. So, you know, sometimes these conversations just don't take place don't happen you you hit a brick wall and uh i think yeah sometimes people are toxic and there's no point in trying to change their minds you just have to leave them be and who knows maybe they'll return to you someday and and might see sense after having their own experiences but certainly i think that uh when you you look at the book and you look at the different areas of prejudice we're all going to experience prejudice whether it is based on the color of our skin or based on our gender or our sexuality or our age. That really seems to be the thing that it doesn't matter how privileged you are, you will experience ageism if you're lucky enough to to grow older. And uh, so it's something that really does touch everyone. So it's really something where you can say, look, you might not understand my perspective and my experiences and my background, but hey, when someone calls you a, a this or a that because of your age or uh, because of your religious beliefs, it doesn't feel good, does it? And uh, to, to try and empathize, mm-hmm. to try and have them empathize with you and to try and empathize with them. Good words there. And uh, at, we are at the end here. So we do thank you very much for taking time out of your day on this blustery winter day <laughs> to talk with us here at Friends Talking Nerdy. Where can people find you online? Okay, uh, my website, so karenstolzno.com and monstertalk.org. 
and psychology today. I've got a column speaking in tongues. Uh, so if you just Google my name, uh, it's a complicated European name, S-T-O-L-L-Z-N-O-W. Um, but you can find all the various things I'm doing um, uh, and go to Amazon as well. And please take a look at my books. Yes, and we will have the links for those in our show description uh, for everybody listening here at home. So thank you once again thank for you. being on the show. Each Monday, we'll have something in this podcast space to entertain your ear holes. Until we meet again, we bid you adieu. Subscribe to Friends Talking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friends Talking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling.